0: Well, amen. Why don't you join me one more time as we pray for our time together. Let's pray together. Ask the Lord to bless us here. Father, we come before you now thanking you so much for your all-sufficient, all-sustaining, and all-merciful grace. Lord, we ask that you would be pleased just to teach us today to fill our hearts with wisdom, our minds with knowledge, and our lives with grace the grace of our Lord Jesus, that you would build us up, Lord, in the most holy faith. As we contemplate, Lord, this wonderful subject of pastoral ministry and pastoral uh, theology, I pray that you would remind us that we are the sheep of your pasture, and that you are the ultimate shepherd. You are the good shepherd. And our Lord Jesus is the chief shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And so, Lord, help us to see how much value You have placed upon Your flock, upon Your sheepfold, all those that You will call sovereignly for Your glory and for Your name. I pray, Lord, that You would remind us what a sacred society we belong to, those who have been called out, chosen, predestined, elected those who have been foreknown by the love of the Father, those who have been put into the covenant family of God through Jesus Christ and through His new covenant blood. We pray, God, that You would give us eyes to see, Lord, our great privileges as as a result, Lord, of Your mercy and Your grace and the great eternal covenant of grace as that Grace comes to each individual heart as You regenerate us, as You fill us, as You make us alive together with Him who was crucified, who died, and who rose again, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Show us, Lord. Show us our great privileges, Lord, as Your church. We ask that You would give us wisdom, Lord, as to... Just what it means to be a member of a biblical church. What it means to be a biblical church. Help us to continue to strive for the pattern, the standard, the goal that the Apostle Paul and the example that he is laying for us here. We ask for your help now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been looking at different uh, observations dealing with pastoral theology, as I mentioned in my prayer. And today we come upon, and you probably know what the theme of this sermon is going to be, but uh, this sermon is dealing with the idea of shepherding or ministering with affection. You see that in verse 8 explicitly when he says, having so fond an affection for you. And so here uh, Paul is expressing his love His desire for the church, his commitment to the church, not just to teach the church, to educate the church, to edify the church, but to love the church, uh, to give his heart and his soul for the church. And um, it's a beautiful thing for us to be exposed to this great pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul. But really, ultimately, all true biblical shepherding goes back to The Lord Jesus Himself, of course. Because in John chapter 10, verse 11, we are told that He loves the sheep and He lays down His life for the sheep. And so Jesus' example as the chief shepherd of what does it mean to love the sheep is something I think the Apostle Paul tried to sort of emulate his entire life. I mean, Jesus' ministry of shepherding us uh, obviously reaches that apex at the cross and but 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 even beyond that, uh, even down to the present moment, Jesus is still loving his sheep because as our mediator, we are told in Hebrews chapter seven that he ever lives to intercede for his people, and so the ministry of our shepherd goes on and on and on as a shepherd. He promises us that through the ministry of the Spirit, He will come to us again. And He will will dwell within us, and He will comfort us. He will teach us, and He will love us. That's all taken out of John 14. John 14, 18. John 14, 26. And then in John 14, uh, uh, excuse me, John 15, we are told that the Holy Spirit is going to extend to us the love of Christ in our hearts. What a beautiful shepherd. Jesus is the perfect example of what does it mean for a shepherd to be committed to the sheep. He is the complete opposite of what he taught in terms of a hireling. We were told that a hireling is a hired hand, someone that just is filling in a spot, has no affectional connection to the church, has no sort of heart for the church. He's just there doing a job, and Jesus says he cares nothing For the sheep. That's the opposite of what you see with Jesus. And it's the opposite that you see with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul knew very well just how much Jesus loved the sheep. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, we are told that Jesus, here called Theos, God, purchased the church with his blood. He spilled his blood for the church. Um, And he demonstrates that love to us. Again, through his ongoing patience, Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40 captures perfectly the ongoing shepherding ministry of Jesus, which says that God will not relent from doing us good. He will never cease to do good to us. That's beautiful. Is it any wonder, therefore, that the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that really he's patterning his entire pastoral ministry after Jesus? His character, his perfections, his excellencies. Uh, look, for example, at 2 Corinthians 10.1. Let me just read it to you. It says He says, now I, Paul, myself, I urge you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. It shows that Paul's heart for the church was pure, uh, even as he said here in this opening section of Thessalonians. I want you to turn with me for a second to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I had somebody tell me once, you preach the entire book of 2 Corinthians. He's like, I didn't get it. It's like, thanks, first of all. Oh, about 150 sermons or something. But it is a complex letter. Do you know why? Because 2 Corinthians reflects the hardest time that Paul ever had in the church. It was the toughest season of his life as a pastor. He had a church uh, that didn't really like him. He had members within the church that were constantly backstabbing him, betraying him, undermining him, questioning his authority, gossiping and slandering him behind his back. And so everywhere Paul went among the Corinthians, he was putting out one fire after another. There's someone over here doing this. There's someone over here doing this. I have to worry about this person. Do I have to come with you with a whip? I don't want to come with you with a severe tone. And constantly you see this in Paul and you just sit there scratching your head going, what in the world was going on in Corinth? I would just say a typical pastoral ministry. I don't know. But look at... Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 because I think here we're giving sort of a glimpse a, a, a sort of an insight into the fact that all biblical shepherding and pastoral ministry is set on the aim of it always is the health and the purity of the church. Look at this text beginning in verse 9. 2 Corinthians 13:9 says for we rejoice when we ourselves are weak but you are strong. Look at the sacrifice, beloved. Look at the sacrifice there by the Apostle Paul. What he's saying is this. He'd gladly be in a weakened state. In other words, maybe persecuted, maybe suffering, maybe imprisoned. If that means that you are strong. We would gladly be pummeled so that you can be in a spiritually healthy environment. He says... This we also pray, that you be made complete. I want you to focus in on that word right there, that you be made complete, because he says it twice. And he says, for this reason, I am writing these things while absent, so that when I am present, I would not use severity. See that there? And that word severity, very interesting. This was uh, very helpful for me, uh, because in pastoral ministry, one of the things that you're constantly uh, having to do is confront confront issues, confront problems, confront sin. And we do that here. We don't just kind of like many churches just kind of turn a blind eye to those things. We we try to confront these things because we know the overall health of the church is at stake. And that word there that Paul uses, severity, a very interesting Greek word, the word apatamas just literally means, even means that uh, the temptation there is to look away. It's interesting, right? Because what he's saying is that The situation can be such that it's hard to even look at a person in that type of confrontational setting. And I've been in many of those meetings. He says... He doesn't want to come with severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me. Now here it is here. Follow along, please. He says, for, this is a very important purpose clause. What is all this authority for? What did did God make Paul an apostle for? What's the whole purpose of pastoral ministry? For building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Watch this again. Be made complete. You see that there? That Greek word there means functioning well, to be in, in proper order. It has, it has this idea of things that were at a place that are going to be put into place. It's kind of like a dislocated limb needs to be put back in its proper socket. He says, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. The God of love and peace will be with you. What a beautiful, beautiful close to a wonderful letter. Paul's passion, therefore, was for the church's edification, for its maturity, for its growth, and what that demanded was a very serious, intentional, and integrous pastoral ministry. Now, go back to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, just to follow the overall train of thought of where we've been and where we're going today, I want you to see that Paul's the purity of Paul's ministry and his co-workers. Because remember, Thessalonians is written, verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now if you're reading the book of Acts, Silvanus is Silas. So if you follow the book of Acts, where's Silvanus? Well, Silvanus and Silas is the same person. So just remember that as you're studying the Bible. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. This, uh, this group of leaders, apostles, pastors, teachers, they had one aim. And that was to edify the church, not to tear it down. But that began with their own, I guess what you could say, motive. Their own motives, their own heart. Uh, What was the reason why they were doing what they were doing? It's a very, very important Question, maybe the most important question that any pastor could ever ask themselves before they go into the ministry of serving the local church is to ask yourself, why are you doing what you're doing? Is it to be seen by others? Is it to be recognized? Is it to have spiritual influence? Is it to have power and persuasion over people? Is it for financial remuneration? What is it for? Well, if you've been following along in the sermons, the Apostle Paul negates all of those things one by one, right? He says, you know, brother, brothers, excuse me, uh, in verse 1, brethren, our coming to you was not in vain. In other words, it wasn't a waste of time. We didn't waste a the time there in Thessalonica. We didn't, uh, you know, we weren't just spinning our wheels. Why? Because, he says, after... We had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. He says, you know we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God uh, in the midst of much opposition. So that, that shows you the level of courage and commitment that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy had in reaching this church that they would go through persecution to get the gospel to them. Whatever it took. He says, for our exhortation does not come from error... In other words, it wasn't a heterodox teaching going on. In other words, something other than orthodox. It wasn't heretical teaching, bad teaching, unsound teaching, unbiblical teaching. It was pure teaching. And then he says, and not by impurity, by way of deceit. In other words, they did not have deceitful, impure motives for coming to them. Remember you said in the ancient times there in Thessalonica and in the Greco-Roman world, you had all these rhetoricians, all these sophists that went around in the public squares and they would speak and they would give their lectures and they would give their messages. You know, I got news for you. Back in Rome in Paul's day, they didn't have, you know, Twitter and, you know, you couldn't run a country from Twitter back then. That'll land on you guys later tonight. No, you had to do it in person. You know, speaking in public was the most effective means of garnishing a following. And some in that culture had perfected it to the point that they can manipulate their crowds with the way and the manner that they spoke, their magnetism, their personality, all of that. the Apostle Paul says, we came with none of those motives. He says, but we've been approved and entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men... But God who examines our hearts, isn't that amazing? He's basically saying the sum total of our the purity of our motivation is, number one, let's get man praise out of the way. We are not here so that you can stroke our egos. We are not here to be made much of. And if that's your purpose and if that's your ministry motivation, you will not be in ministry very long. And if you are, it will not be a very pure ministry. But Paul says that we minister not for the praise of man, he says, but for God who examines our hearts. So he understood, Paul, one of the key theological points of all Pauline theology is understanding that this man, don't tune out now because I said the word theology, right? This man ministered and did everything he did because he believed in the great assize of his ministry. In other words, he believed that his ministry would be tested and judged and that God would actually render a judgment based on his ministry you can see evidence of that everywhere 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 11 and following 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9 10 and 11 he understood the fear of the lord and he persuaded men in light of that incredible accountability that he had before the living god that's why he tells the corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 he says there there in verses 1 and 2 he says we have renounced the hidden things of shame And he says that his conscience was before the people and that they knew whether or not he had integrity or not. It was just an amazing commitment by Paul to pastor with with, with pure motives. Look at that, verse 5. For we never came with flattery of speech, as you know, nor for a pretext for greed. In other words... He wasn't just a flatterer, didn't want to just tell you what you wanted to hear all the time. He didn't want to exaggerate what a great person you are. And, you know, he wasn't so much there to, you know, boost your self-esteem. Sorry. He wasn't there to make you feel like you, you know, like this is your best life now. He was there to preach the gospel of God. And we're going to get to that phrase here in a second. And he says also he wasn't there for pretext for greed. In other words, the word pretext literally means a cloak. Like uh, he was hiding his real motive and that beneath that cloak, the real motive was financial. And what he was saying was hopefully he would get some sort of financial gain from ministering the gospel to these people. And that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 3, that one of the qualifications for an elder is that he cannot have the love of money. That cannot be a dominant passion in his heart. That's not why ministry, or that person is in ministry. He didn't seek glory from other people. He didn't seek glory from other men. He says, even though as an apostle of Christ, we might have asserted our authority, And so what he's saying is that, look, we could have pushed our weight around more than we did. We we actually have a right as apostles of Christ to make certain demands upon you as the church. But even some of those rights, we were willing to lay those aside. Now there is a very important exegetical issue going on here, and we'll get to that in my first point. This is all introduction, by the way. We haven't even gotten to the first point yet. But It just shows us the level of commitment that Paul had on behalf of this church. But really, if you look at all of the things that are going on here, and now in verses 7 all the way down to verse 8, the end of verse 8, Paul now really reveals sort of the inner workings of his heart, the real true complexity of his motivation for the church One that is bent on love and affection. A shepherd's heart. A true pastoral heart for the church. He cared for the people. He did not care for what the people could do for him. He cared for them. And like Jesus, I believe the Apostle Paul would gladly lay lay down his life for his people. We'll see that. Really, Paul's ministry here in, in, in these two verses consists of three things that I want to point out to you today quickly it shows that his affection was proven it was paternal and it was passionate i love alliteration so there you go p p p it was proven it was paternal meaning dealing with being a parent in the faith and it was passionate now look at the first one it was proven affection and i want you to really put on your thinking caps for this first point, some of you are going to love this and some of you are going to completely check out. And, uh, you know, God is witness. <laughs> because the first point has an exegetical discrepancy that we need to deal with here. Uh, more than that, there's actually a textual uh, variant that exists in the Greek text. I was reading the Greek text and looking at that, and then I looked at my NASB and I said, Huh? Why did they translate this like that? Because in the Greek text, in the majority Greek text that you can read, the Nestle the UBS, the Westcott and Hort, and others, what is actually in the text? Now read along with me in verse seven. It, what is in the text actually goes something like this: "But we prove to be children among you, or we prove to be infants among you." What gives? What gives is that in the manuscript tradition, you have the discrepancy between one letter in the Greek. It's either napi or apioi. And that decides whether you're talking about gentleness or infants. Here's the tricky part. The majority of the Greek manuscripts, including the most uh, uh, earliest manuscripts and according to most textual critics, the best Greek manuscript tradition supports the reading infants. And then, if you take into account, how would a scribe have dealt with the differences in the manuscripts? Would he have, would he have inserted the word infant, or would he have inserted the word gentle? Now, if you insert the word infant, that makes the reading a lot more difficult. There's really no reason for him to do that, to make the reading more difficult and awkward in a sense. It makes a lot more sense that the scribe eventually dropped the word the letter n which is the greek word new the greek letter noon he would have dropped the n and instead of napioi he put apioi to smooth out the reading so that it doesn't read we became infants among you but it reads now we became gentle among you because he connected it to the next phrase you see that if if the scribe would have said we became gentle among you as nursing as a nursing mother tenderly cares well then that makes perfect sense there's only one problem let me compl- let me complicate it a little bit uh, a little bit more and i'm thinking to myself see this is why people are checking out right now but look 99% of pastors will not deal with this issue you know how i know i read the expositional commentaries nobody dealt with it i was like come on MacArthur and macarthur doesn't deal with it and that's okay I, i can see the wisdom of not dealing with it but then again our church is not really your typical church but there is another aspect of why i want to bring this up because and to complicate matters more there is no punctuation in the greek text do you know that If you pick up a Greek New Testament, I'm not talking about the ones we're publishing today in warehouses. I'm talking to one about the kind that maybe Paul would have carried in his bag. (laughs) There's no periods. There's no commas. There's no semicolons. There's none of that. You see? And so the, the reader has the task of trying to figure out the different punctuations and the inflections and the and, and, and the different, you know, syntactical issues, grammatical issues going on. But guess what? If you're a Greek speaker, you don't need Wallace's book on grammar. <laughs> you just pick it up and you read it. One of the greatest things that happened to me is over at a friend's house, he was uh, he's Greek. And his mother was there. His mother must have been Oh, I don't know, in her 80s. And she was fluent in Greek. I, great, I gave her my Greek New Testament. She started reading it like, no, I was just like, wow. That's just so, I wish I could do that. She just read it like nothing, you know. She just read John. I just told her to read the book of John. And she just started reading. She didn't need to know what the punctuation was. She'll tell you what the punctuation is. But for us who do not speak ancient Greek, and by the way, biblical Greek is no longer spoken today, uh, per se. Uh, Koine Greek has passed away a long time ago. What is spoken today is a modern Greek that is not the same as the New Testament. Now, if you speak modern Greek, you could easily make your way through the old uh, biblical Greek, uh, but uh, it is different. Now I want you to think about the possibility of this. The Net Bible, which is a, 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 a Bible that's put out by different scholars, reads the verse like this. Because they have decided that infants is the better reading. They have decided to include this, what they believe to be, along with Metzger, along with uh, Philip Comfort, along with Daniel Wallace, to be the superior reading. And so they read it like this. Although we could have imposed our weight as apostles, not a period, but semicolon, instead we became as little children among you, period. Period see that? And then a new thought begins with the the next phrase as nursing as a nursing mother tenderly cares etc etc. So it's just a slight variation. And the only reason I'm saying this is because if the rendering of being a child is correct, then what Paul is saying is that we came to you with the purity of childlike faith we were innocent among you. We were pure, we were transparent. We we were willing to even overextend ourselves before you. Instead of pushing our weight around as apostles, we became like little children in your sight. That is just emphasizing the thought that goes with really with verse 6. And so either way, it shows and it proves that the Apostle Paul's affection was a proven affection. The other reason why I say it's a proven affection is look at the context. But we proved to be either gentle or infants or children among you. But the, fir- the phrase there, among you. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that many pastors don't like to be among their people? I talked about this last week. It's kind of hard not to. Many pastors are afraid of their people. Uh, many pastors are, you know, they've gotten to that point now where the church is big enough so that as soon as the sermon is over, they make a quick exit to the left, and that's it, they're gone. You don't see them. Right? Sure, don't go over to their house or something like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're not accessible. Uh, one thing the evangelical church has done that's really a catastrophe is that we have created celebrity pastors and i really don't care who gets offended at this because this is these are paul's words you know for example look at first peter chapter 5 verse 2 first peter chapter 5 verse 2 says this as peter is there exhorting other elders he says shepherd the flock of god among you in other words everything supposes that the pastor is among his people and it's not this he's not some unreachable Right? Sort of detached, unapproachable person. No. Matter of fact, I would go so far as to say with scripture, because you know, Apostle Paul says what? First Corinthians chapter 3, especially there in verses 3 and 5, he talks about the fact that, you know what? We're nothing. He says, you know, Apollos watered, I planted, or I planted Apollos watered, right? He says, he says, We are nothing, <laughs> but we are servants. Do loss. We are slaves of God through which you believed. That's it. In my opinion, the pastor is called to a form of servitude to the church. You are the servant of the church. My whole life exists to serve you. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to come over and fix your flat tire at 12 o'clock at night or, you know, midnight or something. I'm not your errand boy, but I am your spiritual servant. I am here for you for when you need prayer and counsel, when you need, to, when you need a theological discernment. That's what I exist for. That's what pastoral ministry exists for. That's what Lynn is for. That's why Lynn is trying to quit his job so he can do this full-time, unhindered. I just kind of let the cat out of the bag, but that's his heart, and his heart is in the right place. Because he wants to be undistracted by serving the church. And that's really the way that it should be. If we take these exhortations to serve the church, to be the servants of the church, to labor and to shepherd the flock of God among us, I believe it would wipe out 90% of the pastors in America. Because we'd be unwilling to pay that price. A lot of really comfortable pastors in the American scene, you guys. And I'm one of them. I'm way too comfortable. I'm way too blessed. Just because it's our culture, you know what I'm saying? And uh, you know that's why we need to sort of we need some sort of artificial, radical sort of element in what we do. We need a little bit of that. Okay, let me get off that hobby horse and move on to my second point. The second point is this: not only was there a proven affection, but there was also a paternal. Affection. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. One of the best things about going to the Shepherds Conference with John MacArthur is I'm, you're sitting in a congregation with, oh, I don't know how many people the sanctuary holds, close to 3,000. And whoever's preaching and teaching says, turn here. You just hear this sound effect of Bibles turning. It's just beautiful. Today, a lot of churches, they don't even bring their Bibles to church, which is a tragedy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul again uses this metaphor of his parental sort of relationship to the church. Look what he says here. He says, I don't write, to, write you these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. That's... uh... Just shows for the Apostle Paul how he could easily relate these paternal metaphors to himself to draw out and to bring out his sort of fatherly, or in this case, his motherly affection for the church. Look at the word, if you go back to Thessalonians, the words that he uses there. He says, he became like what? He became like a nursing mother, tenderly caring for her own children. I tell you what, that right there is a sermon in and of itself. Because, notice the different nuances. He was a nursing mother, he tenderly cared, and then he cared for his own children. He took total personal ownership of the church. He didn't pawn the church off on somebody else. It was his church. They were his spiritual children. He was their spiritual mother in the faith, so to speak. Well, there's two words that are used here uh, that really emphasize to us the different types of, 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 of emotion and the different kinds of pastoral ministry that was involved in all of this, because he says two things. He says that he was like a nursing mother, and actually the Greek word there is not mother, mater, it's actually trophos, which just literally means nurse. But because own children, most translations bring out that it was a nursing mother of some kind or something like that. Well, that's true. But he also says that he tenderly cared. You see that? See, it's one thing to take care of someone. Wouldn't you agree? It's one thing to be entrusted and to have the task of providing, let's say, as a babysitter, providing basic needs for a child for a time. So you're there, you're taking care of them, make sure they're fed, make sure they don't hurt themselves, make sure they're clean, make sure they're changed, whatever it is. But there's really no commitment. You know that you're leaving, so there's really no commitment. But this is this is a double whammy, <laughs> so to speak. This is Paul not only providing their basic needs, and there we could say the basic needs are going to be drawn out in the next verse, but just the, the, the needs that they need spiritually, theologically, biblically, to be taught, to be discipled, all of those things. But then he adds the word that literally means to cherish them. That's what the Greek word means. He says that they, he says uh, as a nursing mother, and then this word here, tenderly cares. Uh, you got to use two English words to bring out the one Greek word, tenderly cares, because it means something like to cherish. Um, the ESV really draws this out and talks about the fact that he so desired them. There, there's that there's that aspect of just really. Uh, 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 cherishing and loving them with a commitment. That's the whole purpose. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 because all of this was obviously for the reason and for the purpose of loving them for who they were in Christ. You know, I have something to say about this. The Apostle Paul loved the church, watch this now, not because the church was so lovable, And not because he had so much in common with his people. It wasn't because they were the same nationality, same ethnicity. It wasn't because they had the same interests, the same hobbies, because they were from the same culture. Actually, the complete opposite is true. Uh, This is Paul, a Jew, and he's ministering to the Thessalonians, Gentiles. They had very little in common. (laughs) Paul was raised totally different than these people, And I bet you that if we could have accompanied the Apostle Paul as he strolled down the street there, Thessalonica, which remember, we did this in our introduction, the city of Thessalonica was clobbered in idolatry. There were 40-foot statues to Roman gods that lined the streets, that people would come and sacrifice on behalf of these idols. And you're a Jew, and you're walking down the street, and the paganism is just overwhelming. Can you imagine what Paul would have went through? His whole life was not to touch anything unclean. right? And here he is, loving and ministering to a people that are totally unlike him. And the reason why is because of who they were in Christ. We better be careful what sort of categories we've made in our mind of the types of people that we want to associate with. Because our fellowship, especially as believers in the body of Christ, does not consist of ethnicity. It does not consist of age categories. Some of my dearest friends in the faith are a lot older than me and some of them are a lot younger than me and some of the youngest people i mean one of my favorite one of my dearest friends in the faith is about 10 years younger than i am and he has taught me so much about the lord it's not age specific it's not race specific it's not class specific it is not well the rich people in the church hang out over here but the lower class people of the church they hang out over here that's carnal That is wicked. That's partiality. That's nepotism. That's being a cliquish church. That's the kind of things that keep the pastors up at night. How can we end this? We don't want that. I personally don't believe in racially segregated churches either. I don't believe you should have a black church. I don't believe you should have a Korean church. I don't believe you should have a Mexican church, Spanish church, whatever the politically correct term is. I don't believe you should have these ethnically segregated type churches. You know the only reason why you should have an ethnically segregated church? Language. Okay, if you speak Japanese and you cannot speak English and you are forced to congregate with people that speak only your language, then, then, then maybe there's a case for it. But you know what I see all around town? Is I see churches splitting up for no other reason than some carnal reason. That is wrong. We should be joined by Christ. We should be bound together by Christ. And all of those external, carnal, surface-level, temporal distinctions should vanish. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, I no longer have any regard for anyone according to the flesh. I don't care who you are. I don't care what nationality you are. I don't care who you come from, what your background is. What does he say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28? He says there's no longer any distinctions like that. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, Scythian, barbarian, bond, free. Forget all that. You are one in Christ. And so in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, he loves the church because he sees the church for what the church should be in Christ. He says, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. You see his heart, his ambition? Do you see Paul's passion for the church is to make you and I look like Jesus? That's the whole purpose. You want to put somebody into a mold? Don't create this carnal mold to put them into. The only mold that we should have is cruciform. It should be, like Paul says in Galatians 4.19, he says, I am in labor over you until Christ is formed in you. That's the only thing I want you to reflect. I want you to reflect the beauty and glory and excellency of Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to reflect. I don't want you to come in here and become the status quo. I don't want you in here to become clickish. I don't want you to come in here and think like all of us and, and speak like all of us. You know what I mean? Just like in a copycat kind of way, faking it. Oh, there's so many Christians under mind control, like groupthink. Just think like Christ and don't care what anybody else thinks and you'll be okay. You'll probably not be that okay. Actually, you'll probably be one of people that they want to thrust out <laughs> because it says <laughs> if anybody... Has a passion for godliness, you will be persecuted. The last thing is this that his, affect- his affection was also passionate. If you haven't noticed, I'm trying to recreate some of that passion right now, but the Apostle Paul says in verse 8, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives, because you had become very dear to us. Literally, they had become beloved ones. Beloved ones. And that's exactly his heart. The Apostle Paul passionately loved the church. Passionately. Ah, oh, this is so good for me, for Pastor Lynn, and for every pastor to hear, because your, your, the purity of your love and passion for the church can so easily be complicated by the struggles of the church, the the trials of the church, the you know the divisions in the church, the sin in the church, the issues that are going on in any church can so easily complicate, and there I say even drown out the love and the affection. That a shepherd should have for the sheep. To show you this amazing passion of Paul, I don't think of any attitude that can be more passionate or even more powerful than jealousy. Jealousy is a powerful, powerful emotion. And there could be good jealousy and there could be bad jealousy. Paul speaks of the good jealousy. He says in 2 Corinthians 11:2, he says, "I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betroth you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin." What's he saying right there? Just keep reading. You keep down, going down to verse 13. He's talking about people coming into the church, trying to deceive the church, false teachers trying to come in and deceive their minds, kind of the way that Satan deceived Eve. And what he's saying is, no, I'm jealous for your purity, that no one would deceive you. That's what he's saying. And just reveals to us that there are two things that are involved in this sort of passionate affection of the Apostle Paul. Ready? There is, number one, a theological investment that is that 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 will be there as a result of this passionate affection for the church. There is a theological affection for the church. In other words, or theological investment. Pardon me where the pastor is theologically invested into the church. He cares about their minds. He wants to renew their mind. He wants to train them up in the Lord. What do you read throughout the book of Acts? Constantly throughout the book of Acts, what you're seeing is this. The, the, the persecution happened, and the word of the Lord spread mightily. Persecution happened, and then the word of God spread mightily. Persecution happened, and then the word of God was spreading mightily. Because central to the mission of the church was the exposition of the Word of God, was the preaching, the explaining, the, the, the teaching of the Word of God systematically as well through the Bible because Paul says in Acts chapter 20, he says, I did not shy away, verse 27, from teaching you the whole counsel of God. So there was a, a systematic indoctrinalization of the church. And that's what made... For a healthy church. So many things. You know that Paul saw himself, brothers and sisters, as a priest. Turn with me to Romans chapter 15. The apostle Paul saw that what he was doing on behalf of the church was like an old covenant priest who would minister in the temple or minister in the, in the tent or minister at the tabernacle and offer, offer up sacrifices and praises to the most high God on behalf of the people. This is what Paul saw the preaching of the gospel like. He was like that priest that was offering up soothing, well pleasing aroma into the nostrils of God. And what did that consist of? The preaching of the gospel. Look at what he says, Romans 15:15. 15, 15. I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God, for what? To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God. For what reason? So that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that remarkable? It's in making disciples that the Apostle Paul was offering God worship like a priest. There's a theological investment here, brothers and sisters, and you will forgive me if I go a little long today. How can I not? Look at the next phrase. The gospel of God. People are like, oh no, we're here for another hour. (laughs) Some of you are like, yes. Some of you are like, that's my stomach again. (laughs) I understand. I understand. The Bible says we are beset by many weaknesses. (laughs) The gospel of God reminds us of several things. Number one, it reminds us that first and foremost, the gospel comes from God It belongs to God and it consists of God. Paul often stressed his personal commitment to the gospel when he would call the gospel my gospel. So when Paul says the gospel of God, this is no accident, brothers and sisters. He could have said, my gospel again. But he emphasizes the gospel of God to reiterate that part of his mission is to proclaim God's gospel. In other words, he had a duty to fulfill. It is his gospel. It is not primarily Paul's gospel. It is not primarily the apostle's gospel. It is primarily the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ. It is God's gospel. It is his good news. That was proclaimed ages past. And this is what Paul would preach to the church. To elucidate. What are we doing here week after week after week, year after year after year, hopefully until we're all dead. What we're doing here is we are elucidating the truths of the gospel. That's it. That's all we're doing. You know, nothing new. We're, 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 we're Baptists. Baptists don't like surprises and Baptists don't like new things. <laughs> So nothing new and no surprises. That's right. That's the gospel. We don't want nothing new and we don't need any surprises. We just need the gospel. We just need the gospel of God to be taught to us. The gospel that it says there in Romans chapter 1 concerning his son. There was a theological investment. I can go on and on and on. Paul wanted to see true faithful ministers raised up, competent, equipped to be able to teach and preach the gospel to perpetuate, as he says there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, other men, faithful men, that would in turn do the same thing that Paul was doing. Nothing new. Secondly, this passionate affection also consisted of a sacrificial investment. Did you catch it? Matter of fact, this is really the emphasis here. The emphasis is really this, because notice what he says. Not only the gospel, which is more of a parenthesis, He says, to really emphasize what he's been talking about this whole chapter, he says, but also our lives, because you'd become very dear to us. I would say that if you really don't love believers, uh, if you don't really have a passionate love for Christians, you're not called to be a pastor. Sorry. I mean, I don't care how much theology you know. I don't care how how good you are at Greek or Hebrew. I, I don't care uh, how skilled you are administratively and I don't care how many capital campaigns you can raise and what a great building you can build. Uh, if you have no love for the sheep, Jesus says you're a hireling. It, it, it really, our metal is tested by our love. Isn't that remarkable? You can have all these things, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You can have all these things. You can know all knowledge, prophecies. You can do all these things. But if you don't have love, what does it say? You're just a clanging symbol. You're you're a noisy gong. You're, you're 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 just a you're a contradiction, and that's certainly not what Paul wanted to be. He wanted to invest in the souls of these people. Matter of fact, if you notice there, when Paul says we imparted to you, he says our own lives. You see that in the text. The Greek word for lives there is suke, meaning souls. Paul reached for a word that could adequately describe the level of sacrifice and commitment and, and the level of, of affection that it really had for this church and what he was willing to give. He was willing to give his soul. It's almost as if he could tell you, if I could describe it to you, it's like I'm giving you the most internal part of my heart. I'm giving you everything. And Paul says that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I rejoice. Wow. Why is that so amazing? Because in Philippians, Paul's in prison. And he says, I'm being poured out. And the next word is a total surprise to anyone reading this letter. I rejoice wow strange man this paul the apostle otherworldly and yet paul really assures us that it was not him it was the grace of god in him he knew what a worm he was he knew that there was nothing special about him he knew, the, he knew how weak he truly was. He knew how utterly dependent he was. God had brought him to the brink over and over. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10. What does Paul say? He says that they despaired. In one of his missionary journeys, he says, we despaired even of our life. Why? So that we would no longer trust in ourselves, but that we would trust in God who raises the dead. Wow. Finally, brothers and sisters, I just want you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10. I can think of no more adequate verse in the entire New Testament just to end this section as we think of what it means to be a shepherd, a pastor. I want to leave you last of all with a vision of the greatest shepherd of all the chief shepherd who says in John 10:11 I am the good shepherd the essential moral quality of our shepherd Jesus Christ is goodness goodness How many pastors can honestly say that the essential moral character in their life, their heart of hearts towards the people is good? But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And he proves it. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling or a hired hand and not a shepherd... Who is not the owner of the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. The Apostle Paul has been giving us principles on how exactly we could be the complete diametrical opposite of a hireling. And therefore, much of this for me is introspection time. It's sort of self-examination time. But again, flip the tables on you, brothers and sisters, because this is all talking about ultimately one thing, the love of the brethren, the love of the church, a true vision of what the church is and what God wants the church to be as they are shepherded and taught the gospel of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father. Father, I ask that you would seal these things to our heart and that by faith we would reciprocate the same affection, not just between member and pastor, but between all the flock, all the sheep. Like John says in 1 John, that we would love the brethren because if we do not love the brethren then the love of God does not reside in us. And if we do not love the brethren, John says, we are not of God. Oh God, would you help us therefore to examine our hearts, just to test why it is that maybe we deal with a cold and listless, apathetic heart towards the brethren. Why it is that we have such a low level of commitment toward one another at times. And Father, I pray that You would strengthen the things that are strong in our church. Wherever there is a Christ-like, selfless love toward the brethren, would You fan that into flame? And would You continue to fuel that as we look deeper and deeper into the words and into the example of Paul? Because ultimately, as we follow him in these things... As he says, we imitate Christ. And that's what we desire, Lord, to imitate and to be more like Christ for your glory. For Christ's sake, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.